please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. Welcome back to another episode of Stories Between Us. It's the place where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways so that one day a better story can be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. We're joined today by one of my great friends, uh, artist and activist, poet, mother, everything, uh, Monet Robinson, affectionately known as Nefertiti. So how are you doing today? What up, though? I am well. You know, things are things are pretty wonderful despite the season we're in. You know, despite the pandemic and despite the woefully inadequate response of our leadership, I'm having a good day. Yes. Wow. Having a good day. Modi, how are we today? I'm doing good. Um, echoing the same thing, you know, the weather is crazy right now. I don't know what's oh happening, but it was literally 40 <laughs> degrees two days ago, and today it was 80 and I mistakenly went out Word. in this sweatshirt, and now I yes. feel like I'm getting a cold, but I can't cough in public <laughs> or sneeze, yes. because then I'll be burned at the stake. <laughs> you ain't lying. You ain't I am lying. In a, I am in a very odd position. So I've just been like compressing like my coughs. I've just been like. <clears throat> wow. Just in public trying to not caught, not draw attention to myself. So, you know, how are we dealing with quarantine right now? Like, like what is up in our worlds with this coronavirus? Like, how are we doing? Like, like, yo, this is actually an incredibly crazy time for all of us. Do yeah. you mean, uh. How are we doing as a society or just individually? The whole deal. <laughs> like, Oof. Yeah, I think mm. society-wise, coronavirus is causing really like an, an uprooting in a way. Some people it's mm. necessary. Some people it's a little problematic. Honestly, the, this, this situation has exposed a lot of our inadequacies. I, I mean, just systemically. Mm. It has exposed mm. the truth regarding our food system, our healthcare system. Mm. It's it's truly um, tragic, you know, that so many people have lost their lives, and then at mm. the same time, it's a wake up call because we've been discussing issues for a long time, but this really showed us who we are, really, as a mm. society. Um, individually, I am an introvert. And so to be honest, I ain't been mad at all about a quarantine. I've felt like this has been a much needed sabbatical. Wow. And yes. I know that I know that it impacts people differently. I know that some people actually are like it's detrimental for them to be in solitude or isolation. But it's been super beneficial for me. I've been able to get my balance back just mm. spiritually and mentally. I've been able to reconnect with my family. You know, there's there's mm. been a lot of good, but I do want to be sensitive to the fact that this has been a horrible time. 
for a lot of people. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that's real. You know, one of the things that I notice in in our country right now, it's it's almost as if like this coronavirus moment is exposing, you know, the horrible inequalities, you know, that are living around us continually. And, you know, how our society responds to those particular narratives. Like so many people, you know, in our society, it's as if they don't exist, like they're expendable. And I just wonder, you know, what is that, like what story does that tell of us as a society? That's just so interesting. I think the issue is that the story is not being told. Wow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the issue with that is that um, the story of, um, you know, just call it like I see it, the story of like just ethnic and um, ethnic disparity with the healthcare and um, food and jobs and just really um, what the government presents as a facade to care overall. I think that that story is not being told. I think right now is the perfect time to be telling it. Um, Mm. But it's being suppressed with so much other just stuff. Mm. That's so real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's almost as if like, in some sense, you know, this country's leader need, need to win you know, is in some sense suppressing uh, the stories of our most vulnerable. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yo, so Nefertiti, so good to have What's you up? on. Like, this has been one of my dreams. To I am honored. To, you know, yes, to 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 be able to I am have honored. a conversation with you and, and, and Modi. You know, it's crazy. It's like, you know, I said that you two needed to get to know each other. Uh, like, like y'all would make actually incredible friends. So we like to start this podcast with with a question. You know, I've heard it said one time, you know, that if we want to understand who we are going to become or who we are being right now in these present moments, we can go back to our childhood. So if you would, could you paint me a picture of those key developments in your life or those kind of key moments that help you understand who you are today? Absolutely. That's such an incredible question. So I grew up in uh, East Augusta, which is one of the places that it seemed to have been intentionally divested from here in our city. Mm. Um, It's a food desert. And even though the healthcare district is downtown, there, when I was growing up, there were no clinics. There was, there was nothing easily accessible. Um, So you, you can imagine that you had to travel to get to resources and the city bus, I mean, it's better now today, but back Mm. then it was very limited. So on every level, 
Um, there was just scarcity. And mm. I had a wonderful childhood, but I'm not sure that the school I went to was really a quality school. Um, I grew up in a single, I was raised by a single mother and mm. she is an incredible godly woman and she's one of the yeah, most your gentle <laughs> thank you yeah. she's one of the most gentle and kind human beings i've ever met but um, my mother is she is schizophrenic and mm. there were things that were normal for me that are not normal um and so i that that impacted her health and her ability to care for herself and for me that had major impact on my life and actually when i was when i was in high school we actually got evicted and i was technically homeless even though my experience was that community came together for me and i always had a place to be but um technically like i was homeless and that was directly because of my mom's health declining and so um growing up without a father impacted me in major ways I mean, in, in major ways, we all know how devastating it is for men when they don't have their dads in their lives, but it is also devastating for women. And um, I feel like all of those things have had a direct impact on my formation as a woman. And so today being a wife and seeing my kids grow up with their dad fully present, it's incredible. And being part of, I guess, somewhat in middle-class culture, it's amazing because I didn't grow up in that. And so I'm always, I feel like I'm always learning and I'm always um, pursuing growth because, I mean, it's, it's really difficult when you grow up in poverty. It's really difficult to unlearn certain things, but I will always yes. be chasing growth because I don't ever want to go back there. Like I don't, I don't ever want to, wow. there's a sense in which I'm not, I'm not ashamed of where I come from, but um, there's nothing, there's nothing about my experience of home that I guess even when I say, Home. I feel like I've always been looking for a home, been looking for a place mm. where it's like, okay, this is my space. This is, I'm safe. Like I can, I can rest now. And that's just been wow. a constant theme in my life. I feel like, so I think that's how I would, I would summarize my childhood. Yeah. I think, um, I just want to echo what you said about, you know, um, how not having a father affects females just the same. I know that it's um, a joke most of the time saying that a girl has daddy issues, but it's real. Daddy issues are real. It's so real. And I think um, it's interesting because most people don't really ever want to talk about that, talk about how 
females mentally and um, physically kind of long for a certain male presence. But when we're growing up, we don't really realize that because there's too much going on like in our heads anyway with hormones. Yeah. But I know, I know for me, Word. I didn't, I didn't, I thought literally my shoelace could have come untied and I would have thought the world was ending. I was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, the world is about, I'm, I'm, this is how it ends. This is it. Um, and I didn't realize until I got older uh, that all of my need for, I guess, love and attention and sense of community was displaced or misplaced because of mm. the lack of a father figure I had. I have an amazing stepfather um, who's done amazing things for myself and my mother, but I mm. completely agree that there's no real replacement for your father and um you know whether that be voluntary or involuntary his absence um yeah. it's still detrimental yeah yeah thanks for sharing your story thank you thank yeah, that's you for so, allowing that's me so, to that's yeah that's so that's so good and so interesting you know of just this story of looking for home and you know there that that even that story is so relevant for so many people today that that there is you know so many people who are looking for a place that they feel you know is theirs there's a place of security where they can be free and be themselves so i'm so interested you do music like how has music been this kind of space of freedom and home for you Hmm. So when it comes to music, it's something that I've always used to escape reality, kind of, and at the same time capture reality. I don't know if that's a contradiction, but the best no, way that I makes can sense. describe it is... I get it. it. No, I get it. I get okay. It. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I want this to make sense. I really do. But so I would escape, you know, I would transcend my literal location, listen to music from different times, different cultures. And then at the same time, I would try to capture very, very vividly and accurately my emotion or my experience in the music that I create. So it has been... It's been difficult to share my music because of how raw and vulnerable I am in my own writing. You you know my like essays and Facebook posts and stuff like that, but not a lot of people know my music because my music is really, I mean, it's just, yo, I can't hide with that pen, man. I get that pen, <laughs> I pick up the pen and it comes out. It just does. And I'm grateful for it. And at the same time, I'm terrified of that kind of exposure. So I'm still mm. wrestling with, I'm still wrestling with that as an artist. So I love performing and I love the way that you can channel your emotions into the music and the way that you can connect with other human beings just through music. But there is a power to it that is, that I'm afraid of. 
in other words. Yeah. You know, um, you brought up your Facebook post and I'm glad you did. But right before I get into that, um, I wanted to talk about what you just said, like you can't hide. And mm. I think that that's an interesting, uh, an interesting topic when it comes to passions. Like I love to paint and um, I stopped painting for a long time. And then I recently picked it back up. And the first piece I did was inspired after um, after the killing that happened in the mosques um, last year. Mm. And um, it affected me deeply. And I I just I still to this day don't understand. But that was the first painting that I did after. And I literally have them stacked in a corner of my house because I feel Mm. so vulnerable whenever someone is like oh what are these let's look at these right (laughs) and (laughs) and it's uh it's i completely get it but what is it about passions that make you feel so um open but then you know what is it about society or the way that we've been groomed i guess to make us feel as if the things that 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 open us up the most that make us feel most raw what is it that has made us feel like that's shameful Mm. and i i hate that i hate that there's not a space to share any of that and you know it's easy for somebody to just post something it's easy for somebody to just start selling something But if it's something that someone is really passionate about, what is it about society or upbringing that makes us feel as if it's unworthy? Wow, that's so good. Yeah, you know, what's so crazy is like, you know, I, I love I love that we're we even like talking about this because so many, I think it's so relevant, you know, to our time right now that like, you know, in this time that coronavirus has kind of thrust us into, you know, a lot of people, they're building so many different platforms. Like everybody is, you know, starting something new. And, you know, there's so many people, you know, who, who are like built on this like performance, you know, kind of ethic that, you know, I got to perform well. I got to look so good. And, you know, this performance is making us in some sense, like, you know, we're not, we're not embracing our uniqueness. And because we're not embracing our uniqueness, it's limiting our ability to create good stuff. Hmm. You know, it's like, you know, there's a difference between a worthy rival and an unnecessary enemy. Mm-hmm. There's there's a big difference, and I don't mm. know if we know that difference between an unnecessary enemy and a worthy rival. Where like you know, hey, this person my, is my, dope, my. and I you know I want to be like them. I want to like I think this is really good. They're challenging me. They're helping me. But there's another part that's like, hey, dog, like I'm mad that they're getting called on and I'm not. Mm. Mm. (laughs) wow that is like that hurts us tremendously because in some sense because we are comparing ourselves is hurting our kind of like you know embodying our passion Mm -hmm. and embodying our purpose 
And I'm so interested to hear, like, you know, even how that has been worked out in our own lives, you know? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Passions are a huge deal. And just like you were saying, how it's been worked out, I want to bring up um, Nefertiti's recent, uh, I guess, unmasking. Yes. of the 1970 Augusta riot, please talk to talk to us more about that. Well, I it's, it's been such an incredible journey. We've been working on it for about two years now. Um, basically, I have a absolutely I can't call her mentor like formally, but I would absolutely informally refer to her as my mentor, Karen Gordon. She is just a movement here in Augusta. She just ended up sending me the info and and saying, basically, she gave my info to the steering committee that was already forming. And she told me about, I guess, the goal. And she mentioned that she didn't have time to participate, but she knew that I would make time to participate because she knows me Mm. well. So... Mm. that's how I got involved and then after I started showing up and after I started learning more of the history I just became absolutely convinced that this would be a kind of part of my life work so there's an activist and she's far more than just an activist but there's an activist up in Richmond Virginia and her name is Free Igumini and um, I hope I didn't mess, mess up her last name but Basically, she she coined the term commemorative justice. And it's basically about the erasure that has occurred, you know, specifically due to white supremacy, specifically due to revisionist history. And that's pretty much exactly the type of work that we're doing with this 1970 Augusta riot history, because this uprising was the largest Black uprising of the Deep South, of the modern civil civil rights era. And yet, when we submitted our paperwork to the Georgia Historical Society, no one there had even heard of this event. Wow. We're talking the keepers of Georgia history. Mm. Haven't even heard about this story. Didn't even know about this. And even though we have receipts that this was the largest in size, the largest uprising in the Deep South, the history has been erased. And and even in the local community, they did such a great job framing the narrative in, in a problematic way that that's how the community internalized it. And nobody wants to talk about mm-hmm. it because it's like, that was bad. That shouldn't have happened. We don't want to discuss that and we don't want to go, we don't want to do that again. Um, But yeah, I, it it was such an honor to, to be in a a group that it, there, there were lots of, you know, white people involved and everyone is on a journey. You know, there's, Hmm. there's different generations involved and we had to work on understanding one another and, clarifying what our motives are really and working towards a singular goal, which we have decided is, you know, acknowledgement of in humanizing the victims 
and the community that participated and um, vindicating where possible the names of people who have been wrongfully slandered and mm. criminalized and shedding light on this history from the perspective of those who are the center of the story instead of from the perspective of dom you know uh mainstream media and dominant culture so it's it's been pretty revolutionary and radical and i'm so grateful that i've been able to take part Hmm. yeah you know i was reading your facebook post um and i think it is so interesting that you said um that you feel more committed and convinced and less um afraid it's um i think that's an important topic especially right now with regarding the recent killings that have happened um but it's so important to be seen and it's so funny that you say it's not funny at all but i mean in speaking context funny that you say that um that they that there's such an erasure that that has happened i um attribute my personality where i grew up to you alabama in georgetown georgia and uh you actually has so much history that has literally been burned away mm. that nobody ever wants to talk about but then the revisionist part of that is that they have this thing called a historical district mm. and they have this thing called a um pilgrimage every year mm. it's a uh, it's one week long every year and it's showing all of these houses that they teach are not master's houses or slave houses but in one of them there are shackles in the basement and another there's a cotton mill right and every week or i'm sorry every year for a week they open up all of these houses for people to just parade through and it is more than frustrating um to watch you know um I I would never say that say that I internalize another or I can can understand another entire race's grief but I am um I am confident enough to say that I hate to see what it does mm. to my to, to my friends, to my to the community that has so affectionately, you know, taken me in. So, um, yeah, so I think it is amazing that you did this work and that you were able to do this through the uh, historical society that really knows nothing of and it. And I really appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, as, asking this question, it's when I think about the story that you just shared, I'm just the the audacity i mean this i'm guessing they make money from this right you know what i'm saying like you're you have found a way to oh absolutely and you know attract tourists for something mm. and at the same time you've erased truth and cut people out of that economy it is mm. so absurd and twisted and i just Man, I could literally go in on them right now. <laughs> I'm gonna look. How did you do? After. Okay, let's go in on them real quick. <laughs> let's 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 go there. Let's talk about it. So, work that out for us a little bit. Well, um, 
like I said, there's, so when it comes to history, there's literal, you know, capital collateral assets, right? And then there's also cultural collateral. That's a term that I've started using because it's basically like, if it impacts quality of life and if it impacts um, or increases the value of something, it could be something that contributes to marketability. It could be something that contributes to um, relevance and name building, branding. But mm-hmm. yeah, those are still that's that is something that can be turned into money. And so when you cut out people who have been part of building that, when you cut them off from the flow yeah. and the the stream of like prosperity, that's wicked. Like that's not okay. And it has generational impact because you have set up mm. a system that you are able to have a sustainable flow of income from Mm. And you're not telling the full truth and you're cutting people out of it so that they can't benefit from it. Now, this this doesn't have to look as insidious or as, you know, malevolent as I'm making it sound. But ultimately, that's the impact. I'm talking about impact, not necessarily intent. So Mm. these are things that matter because they make money off of that stuff. Mm. Wow, that's good. So you say something about intent and impact. And I love, I love, you know, that distinction that you're making, you know, how do you see this kind of narrative between intent and impact working it, working itself out and how we tell our stories and the power that their stories have for us as individuals and us collectively as a society? So honestly, I, I feel like there have been, um, acts of violence committed and you know one of the easiest one of the easiest paths to escape accountability in my observation that's been used consistently is intent like oh that wasn't the Mm. intent behind what i said or did that wasn't the intent of my project or of my movement. And you see it not just at the corporate level, not just at the local organizational level, but even in interactions with individuals, whenever you're having a conflict or a confrontation, you see this a lot on social media, but that is one of the first defenses, line of defenses that people use when they don't really want to be held accountable and that's yeah. not okay. It's not okay at all because guess yes. what? Nobody can confirm your intent. Mm. Nobody can confirm that that's between you and the most high God. Like I can't do anything with your intent. Right. What I've come to deal with, I bring the receipt of impact. I come to deal with the concrete impact of what was done and what we can do to address it and prevent it from happening in the future. That's when we're getting somewhere, when we start talking about that. Because so long as we're centering intent, nothing ever has to like be reconciled. Nothing ever has to be um, 
correct it outside of once you feel better, then like you're free, you set yourself free. And that's not how justice works. So I feel like that is actually one of the hugest issues that we're combating when we're trying to work out justice and on on the community Mm -hmm. level. People constantly give themselves a pass because, well, that wasn't their intent. Wow. Wow, that's so good. And I think, yeah, that's that's incredible, especially as you think about this kind of term that you use of commemorative justice. Uh, and you write, I love this, what you wrote. You said celebration and lament were such important parts of life in the scriptures that there were actually women given officials roles to lead the expressions thereof as communal activities in timely manners. Though I have no clue what that might have looked like in ancient Israel, all these years later, I have plenty of examples to glean from thanks to black women who have been doing this specific work of black pain for a very long time. And so I love, you know, I love how you navigate both this relationship and you know, commemorative justice, but particularly, you know, from the narrative of black women. So I would love to hear, yeah, work that out for me a little bit more. The role, you know, of, you know, you as a black woman in this kind of narrative of seeking commemorative justice, particularly in this Augusta riot and beyond. Certainly. So I, again, the the term commemorative justice, I want to give credit and cite free egunfumi. Egunfumi, I'm not, I'm not sure. Her last name is spelled E-G-U-N-F-E-M-I. And she coined that term in light of the work that she is doing up in Richmond to, to correct, you know, the the narrative of their history. And so here I am here in Augusta, Georgia, trying to remind and introduce for the first time for some of the younger generations, remind us of who we are and where we, Mm. where we have, what we have been and what we have done in this space where we're currently being gentrified out of in this space where we're currently the most unemployed, the least educated, that, I mean, the disparities are so great here. And so when I think about commemorative justice for for our community, I think that in light of the, the black women who have paved the way and who have sacrificed and funded from their very own pockets and with their very own hands have funded the progress of our people and the progress of our community, it is, it is not okay for them to become ghosts and for their names to just be forgotten and for their contributions to just be um, received so ingraciously. I mean, it's like, to receive and receive and receive and receive and and never acknowledge and also to give and give and give and give and give and never be acknowledged. I think mm. that that is, you know, part of the 
consumerism, part of the greed that I think unchecked capitalism breeds. Mm. And so with commemorative yeah. with commemorative justice, it's first firstly about truth telling. And then it's secondly about dignity and um, value and worth, recognizing self-worth worth. and I just think that, again, going back to what I was sharing earlier about economies, there is a sense in which we we lose, we have lost, you know, at the point of um, being disenfranchised, right? And at at the at the moment that we were wronged, we lost, and then we continue to lose because we're continue to. We're continuously cut out of whole entire economies. You mm. you have a whole tourism department that curates Augusta's image and that tells Augusta's story. And then like we always get like a really small mention, like an honorable mention mm. and, and a partial mm. truth told. And I'm just, I'm tired of that. And like... Mm-hmm. We we talk about reparations, you know, it's been a conversation for generations, of course, but we talk about reparations. And I think that that can look like many different things. And, and one of those things is like allowing us to get to be empowered and have the ownership that we should have of our spaces and of our stories. And I think commemorative justice mm. ties to that. Yes. Um, can you additionally please tell us the story of Charles Oatman and why really his story matters for you and our stories? Certainly. Um, so Charles Oatman was a very beloved kid. And at the time of his death, he was 16 years old and he was severely mentally impaired. He was known as very, very gentle, but also very fragile and easily frightened and um, very loving. And unfortunately, there was a situation, an incident where in the home he was living, his younger one of either his niece or cousins found a gun in the home and she was only two, but she was playing with it. And Charles tried to get the gun from her and accidentally, accidentally shot her. And hmm. unfortunately she passed away and the city of Augusta found him guilty of murder and put him in a prison with adults and um, there were other there were other juveniles in that jail. But long story short, you know, he was he was charged with murder and placed into a jail with inadequate with inadequate surveillance, with very questionable culture, and he was brutally murdered. And um, his body had wounds that revealed that he had been tortured for weeks before he died. 
and he had very, very, he suffered very disturbing injuries, very disturbing injuries. Mm. And so at that point, once the community found out about it, they were so enraged. Firstly, because it was absolutely believable that this had been done by prison guards because of the relationship and the culture in Augusta of police brutality. It was absolutely believable that some white prison guard did this to him. Mm. And so that is a huge problem. That is a huge problem. Um, ultimately, two black young men were charged with his murder. And, um, you know, there's, it's, we, we think that the FBI case might actually still be open regarding what actually happened to Charles because we still don't really know because there was such a level of secrecy and such a lack of accountability um, with the authorities at the time. So his death, there were things brewing um, all over the city, there were there there was already a tense relationship between Black Augustans and Augusta mm. leadership, but that particular event was like that's when people mm. snapped. That's when it was mm. like, okay, you know what? This is this is the moment where we stand up and we say, either fix this or we burn it down and we tear it up and we end it. Mm. Like, fix this or this ends. This is gonna end somehow. We either gonna do this constructively or destructively. Basically, wow. that's what happened. And um, like I said, it, it was the largest black uprising in the deep South of the modern civil rights era. Yeah, in, in preparation for this um, conversation that we're having, I actually did just like a quick, quick research. And um, there's this PDF that is on, um, that I found through Google and it's titled Augusta, Georgia and Jackson State University, Southern Episodes in a National wow. Tragedy. Um, and on page six of that, of that PDF, it says, Quote, now we see the South's first major Negro riot occurring in Augusta. Now we see instance after instance of the reliance on might and force against yet another expression of legitimate grievances, students protesting against war and the general drift of American policy. Mm. In, Southern, in the Southern versions at Jackson State, as earlier at Orangeburg, the ever use of force had elements of the old uses of it, racial oppression. And that paragraph, it, this, this whole, um, this whole archive or document is, uh, really interesting, but that one paragraph kind of hit me because this is, it's, it's like, as if this was written today. Wow. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Yeah, that's it was real. as if this was written today and this was written in 1970. And um, it feels as if, as if nothing has changes. And I think that, uh, I think it's interesting that they put legitimate grievances. I think that there's a culture of people that try to um, desensitize mm. themselves to, to what has happened and what is yeah, happening. Yeah. 
Um, and I think that desensitization, excuse me, of it is um, obviously a problem. But is it? I can't help but to think that it's um, it's because it happens so much that people feel like somehow it's like it's the it's the norm, right? Man, is it I don't know what for it is. you specifically? Right. For you specifically, do you feel, um, do you feel that? Do you, um, I guess, feel as if, as if there would be anything, anything else? Honestly, I think that people deceive themselves when they distance themselves from these issues, because ultimately police brutality, that's an issue that affects every single demographic in every race. Wow. I don't know why the media chooses to, well, I, I kind of do, but um, police brutality affects everyone and not everyone dies from it. And if you, if you research any city's settlement records, you'll really see how big of an issue it is. And so when people wow. distance themselves from it, I mm-hmm. think they're deceiving themselves. And um, I think that, you know, there is a illusion of safety and security in distancing yourself from, and this is just exactly what white supremacy is, right? Like it's anti-blackness is so normal that you have to, you have to actually um, pathologize and create an entire ideology to justify the murder of unarmed black men in order to continue to remain mm-hmm. distance from that. Because if mm-hmm. you accepted that, you know, if you accepted that the current system that exists that you benefit from um, was actually wicked and, and um, destructive for other people groups, you would have to wrestle and deal with and distance yourself from or let go of something you benefit from. And that would personally wow. cost something. So I think that, you know, it's it's a sad thing to see people distance themselves from things that affect their own groups. It's, mm. it's just, mm. I, I think I had a conversation with someone years ago about you know, they were just saying, you know, it's it's really like a 1% rate, like only 1% of the people are being killed. And I was like, and you know what, that's still too high. And, mm. and you know, and they were saying, and it's really, it's more white people that get killed than black people. And I'm like, and you know what, I don't know why y'all aren't okay. upset. Mm. I don't know why y'all aren't angry. Yeah. Why are y'all mm. not angry? Right. Because mm. that's not acceptable. So, wow. you know, that's, that's what right. I think. Um, in the in the same document, um, I just want to highlight um, on page seven. It says Governor Lester Maddox after the Augusta killings, quote: "If they shoot at our guardsmen and firemen, they had better be prepared to meet their maker. We have the trucks, personnel, and guns to do the job. I'm in constant contact with the people mm. down there, and I'll go there and do whatever is mm. necessary." Why is it that? whenever whenever a people gets angry enough to do something about it they 
instead of instead of just handling it as as uh i guess ethically morally and um legally possible why why is it that they feel the need to bring force mm-hmm. you know in my opinion i think that i think that they're too, they're too scared honestly i was watching um this movie called the banker i don't know if you guys have uh-huh. heard of it but it's on <laughs> yeah it's on apple tv uh hey let's go recommend okay <laughs> <laughs> It uh, it has Samuel Jackson and um, man, the other name, the name of the other star slips me. But it's about two uh, two a, a young black man, really two black men. But he's from Texas and he moves to L.A. He's a real estate in- investor, and in a time where black people weren't buying buildings and redlining was a huge deal. We can do a whole separate episode on redlining, but um he was fighting the effects of this and was buying real estate and commercial buildings and residential buildings in primarily white neighborhoods and putting his own people in those areas because nobody else would do it. And in order to make that work, he had to get a front. He had to get a white man to handle all of his business deals. Mm. And he was just coaching him in the back. Like, yeah. I won't I won't tell you what happened but <laughs> at the end of it there's a there's a trial and um in the trial whenever he says something that the lawyer tells him to not say whenever he starts speaking the truth really um the only way that the judge felt comfortable in cutting it off was to not let him finish <sighs> but it was to to remove him mm. So when when are we going to be able to finish? Wow. Right? Who who is going to who is going to let us finish our sentence? Mm. Wow, mm. that's so good. That's so good. It reminds me, you know, of James Baldwin. He wrote a letter in I think 1962 if I'm not mistaken. It was a letter that he was writing to his nephew and when I first read this letter it really struck me he wrote this he says please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority but to their inhumanity and fear yes Mm. Yes. and there is something you know i read that you know in our society if you want people to hate deep down then tell them that their economic, social, and political position is being threatened and that the person is not only threatening their economic, social, and political positions, but threatening their very ideals of God and belief itself. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that is, in mm-hmm. some sense, like, you know, this aspect of storytelling that we are trying to bring out of, you know, Charles Oatman's story and our own, our own stories and our collective stories together. You know, how have, you know, I just wonder, you know, these stories that have been told that has made people so afraid of us and what mm-hmm. is it doing to us? The story of inhumanity, the story of fear, this story of, you know, 
we're losing a certain type of America, a certain type of community, a certain type of religion that we believe was ours in the first place, that we're losing it. Mm. And therefore, in order to gain it, we must use violence and the expression of violence against us, against oppressed peoples is a very expression of inhumanity mm-hmm. that you have to, that if, even if we think about Amar Arbery, they didn't see him as human. Mm. Breonna Taylor, right. they didn't see her as human. Mm. Mm. Just mm. threats. My goodness, you know, it's, it's something because if you, if you look at the relationship that our communities have had with one another across racial lines, going back to the beginning, you have a community that has rehearsed nothing but violence towards the black community. Like you used to be able to just build, I I mean, you could just build on top of our cemeteries. We didn't matter. Mm. There's cemeteries that don't even have logs with our names because (laughs) that doesn't matter. They're not people. There's, mm. we know there's receipts where people sold us, like we're listed next to animals and livestock. There's people have rehearsed being violent towards us. There was a law, the Casual Killing Act of I think 1699 in Virginia made it legal to where if mm-hmm. you are trying to correct mm-hmm. or apprehend a slave and and you're trying mm-hmm. to correct them if they so happen to die, if you kill them, you're not guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. Like that was a law. Mm-hmm. And you know that actually just got uh just got repealed. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. You can tell. I mean, mm-hmm. you can tell. Mm-hmm. There's a case True. where I mean, there was a situation where a a mother was running away. I, I wish I remembered her name, but she was um running away. And she had a she had had a baby, and this woman was about to be captured, and so she killed the baby because she mm. felt like that's how horrible slavery was. She would rather her baby die than for it to become a slave for the, its entire life. Do mm. you know that Wakanda. the courts? <laughs> do you know that the courts charged her of damaging property? Wow. They didn't even charge her with murder. Like the country has rehearsed violence towards us and that Mm. hasn't been corrected and whatever narrative they've told themselves to justify that violence, that narrative hasn't been corrected either. So you're doing very important work in terms of storytelling. Mm. That's real. And you know, the stories between us, you know, we all have these stories that matter. They don't just you know, connect us to ourselves or to one another, but they connect us to the larger world. Uh, You know, it's these narratives, our narratives, our stories together, even if they're greater, if they're horrible, you know, whether they're uh, wrought with, you know, so many trials or even triumphs, you know, it's these stories that help us create a more loving and just world. You know, I would love to end, you know, as we started the podcast with the question, you know, how, uh, do you think about your story and those key divine moments to help you understand who you are? I would love to end with, you know, how do you see your story as possessing power? Where is your place in 
helping us tell a better story together. That is such an excellent question. Um, and I think that if I, I want to believe that if I am um, diligent to pursue growth and to pursue excellence, and if I am authentic, I want to believe that that will impact those who I'm in proximity with and that they would be hopefully sparked to, to truly locate themselves in our society and in our time and to do something. You know, we are here. We were here. We, we have been here. Once we're gone, we will still have, you know, we were here. And so yeah. I think it's so important to try to connect the past and the present and to try to elevate and, you know, distribute to as many people who will listen, to as many people who are interested about the truth the truth about our society, our place in the world, the work that we're doing in the world, our impact on the world as Americans being being possessors of privilege and um, having access to, you know, things that people on the other side of the world don't have access to. I just think that, honestly, the humanity of all of this is what I come back to being authentically human and pursuing mm. being the best human that I can possibly be. Um, not, not from an angle of like working for any type of salvation, but just literally like working to be sanctified, working to be, to do good work and to bear good fruit, to leave behind and to deposit into the next generation. I just think that that's, mm that's the only thing I can control. So like, let me, yes. let me do that. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. My friends, thank you all for joining us for another episode of the stories between us. You know, as we say, we are a podcast where ordinary stories intersect in extraordinary ways. You know, as we tell our stories with candor and courage, imagination and joy, we create better stories together. And maybe one day a better story can be told. I'm Stu. And I'm Modi. And we are.